From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Say I go to a jazz club, I get called up on stage with other musicians who I may or may not have ever played with before, and we try to figure out a tune that we're all going to play together. Most likely, everyone else is going to know at least one Miles Davis or Mung or Gillespie or Parker tune, but no one's going to know a Mary Williams tune. And that's part of why I wrote this book, is to get people back to listening to Mary Lou's music and to knowing what it sounds like. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Deanna Witkowski. She's an award-winning jazz pianist and a composer who recently relocated to Mary Lou Williams' hometown of Pittsburgh after spending 23 years as a New Yorker. Her seven recordings include the forthcoming Force of Nature, featuring compositions all composed by Mary Lou Williams, and Makes the Heart to Sing, Jazz Hymns, featuring 14 jazz arrangements of classical hymns alongside a companion book of sheet music. As a frequent guest music leader, Witkowski has shared her original liturgical jazz in over 100 churches throughout the United States. She's lectured and performed the music of Mary Lou Williams at venues including the Kennedy Center, Duke University, Fordham University, and with the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. She is currently a PhD student in jazz studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and today we're talking about her recent book, Mary Lou Williams, Music for the Soul. Deanna Witkowski, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, today we're going to be talking about the life, the music, and the legacy of one of the great but often unknown luminaries of the American and European jazz world, Mary Lou Williams. And in order to get my listeners into quick understanding of what we're going to be talking about, I'm going to start the interview in perhaps maybe a a little bit of an odd place. So I think that listeners who are used to popular music would understand if I said that Mary Lou Williams was an accomplished pianist. I also think that they would understand what we mean if we say that Mary Lou Williams was an acclaimed composer. But one of the things that you point out early and often in your book, Mary Lou Williams, Music for the Soul, is that Mary Lou Williams was also heralded as an arranger. And I think this is a way of helping listeners who may be unfamiliar with jazz as a genre to begin to understand what we mean when we talk about the greatness of Mary Lou Williams. Could you tell us a little bit about what you mean when you say that she was a great arranger? Sure. Well, for about 12 years from 1929 to, say, 42, Mary Lou Williams was touring as the main pianist and arranger with a early big band called Andy Kirk and his 12 Clouds of Joy out of Kansas City. And at that time, especially in the 30s, the way that big bands differentiated themselves besides how, say, each individual soloist or instrumentalist played was that you might have three bands playing the same tune, but they would have different arrangers 
who are making the tune sound different by say what how they use either the horns the saxophones or the trombones or in some cases perhaps tuba instead of bass what melody lines they're giving to different instruments how they're combining harmonies in different ways if they're using different chords that are unexpected so this is one of the things that gave Mary Lou a great amount of notoriety, especially in the 30s, is the way that she used the instrumentalist she had in that big band to create a unique sound. And I think that begins to give listeners a picture because I think contemporary listeners oftentimes are used to popular music coming out under one artist and being maybe an artist might do a cover of a song and reinterpret it a little bit. But I love what you're saying about the fact that in one night, patrons who are sitting in an audience might hear three or even four different versions of a song. And part of what made the jazz scene so full and unique was that every one of those interpretations, every one of those performances would be a different experience for the audience. Now, these are my words, not yours. As I'm saying that back to you, am I following what you're saying? Yes. And you know, and there's still, I mean, I do a lot of work as an arranger. I love arranging. So that's one thing. It doesn't have to even be in the context of jazz per se. Like when I take a hymn tune, like I had a recording, as you mentioned, called Makes the Heart to Sing jazz hymns and take a hymn that's usually written four-part harmony really straight only maybe three chords and all of a sudden I add all these other for lack of a better word jazz chords to it or change the rhythm or do something different it makes the piece sound very new and unexpected and surprising and that's really what the job of an arranger is so anytime you hear say a vocalist doing a tune that might be perhaps a a pop tune or something and say doing it with an orchestra the person who created the sounds you hear the notes that the orchestra players are playing that's the work of an arranger i think also maybe listeners and this is all just a way of setting the stage for a larger conversation but i think maybe some listeners if they know about jazz maybe they know about kenny g or chuck mangione they may have heard one tune that broke over into the popular charts and so they have a certain idea about what jazz is a noodly woodwind instrument over a kind of maybe a three four time or something like that but jazz has such a rich complex affected history not just in america and in europe could you tell us just briefly for those that may be unfamiliar with this kind of the sweep of how jazz has touched the musical the musical lifeblood of america through i'd say probably almost nine or nine decades or a century now well that's a very big question david but i can certainly say that when you think of so When you think of eras, say the 1940s, I would say a lot of people would still associate jazz with that period with the swing era. And they might think of the swing era as being a time when jazz was popular music. I mean, it wasn't separate from popular music. It was music that people were going out and dancing to in ballrooms. And so it was really important for these early big bands like the band that Mary Lou was in with Andy Kirk to actually be constantly providing new music for their patrons to dance to. Now that concept changed a little bit in the fifties when jazz became more about listening music. So in some ways I really feel like that's the time when there was a shift from 
popular or mass audiences not necessarily being so aware of jazz musicians recordings but the fact is there are probably on any pop artist you could name jazz musicians are very versatile so we can play pop music we can play funk we can play r&b we can play soul music i mean if you think of all the motown music a lot of the people who are creating orchestrations or arrangements were also jazz musicians or jazz influenced so it really it goes down to this day i mean the person who plays keyboards with james taylor is, is a great jazz player so larry golding so there's jazz is really a piece of a lot of other styles of music but we just don't always know that or are aware of it if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Deanna Witkowski. She's an award-winning jazz pianist and composer. And today we're talking about her recent book, Mary Lou Williams, Music for the Soul. In late October, Deanna Witkowski will also be coming out with an album featuring compositions all by Mary Lou Williams called Force of Nature. Well, now that we've set the stage, I want to introduce listeners to the life of Mary Lou Williams. And beginning at a very young age, she showed an amazing talent for music. And you describe this really wonderfully in your book, Mary Lou Williams' Music for the Soul, of sitting on her mother's lap as her mother was playing the organ. And suddenly, Mary Lou Williams reaches up and does something. Tell us what she does and how that begins to blossom into a lifelong musical career. Sure. Well... Mary Lou Williams, when she was very young, about three years old and living in Atlanta, where she was born, her mother, who was a domestic worker and was only able to be home with her family on the weekends, often played in her church. So she played organ. So as Mary Lou describes it, her mother had Mary Lou sitting on her lap. Her mother is practicing or playing something on the organ keyboard. And when she pauses for a second, Mary Lou reaches up and plays back the same melody that her mother just played. So her mother, Virginia, is so shocked by this. She wants to go and run and tell the neighbors. She gets up and she drops Mary Lou on the floor in her haste and runs to let her neighbors and friends know, look what my daughter just did. And Mary Lou has this very uncanny ability to play back a lot of what she hears. So when her family moves north to Pittsburgh about a year or so later, when she's about four years old, she's learning not only from player piano roles. So if listeners might not be familiar with what that is, that's actually roles of a, a type of paper where the music is scrolling along inside these player pianos. And what happens is the keys of the piano will depress according to the, how they show up on the roll. So Mary Lou partially learned to play piano by putting her hands on the keys and imitating what she had just seen the, the notes on the piano do when they were pressed. She also learned from musicians who were traveling through Pittsburgh because she became somewhat legendary even at an early age because musicians heard about this young girl who was able to play at such a high level. And so she had people coming to her home 
and informally mentoring her and including musicians in Pittsburgh. She mentions a lot one early stride pianist named Jack Howard, who is not well known at all. He was a stride pianist in Pittsburgh who showed her how to play her left hand, as she said, stronger than her right hand, because that's where the beat and the feeling was in jazz. So she also had occasions where musicians would come through town on a tour. And in in those days, we're also talking vaudeville tours. So there was a musician named Buzzin Harris who had a group called Hits and Bits. And he comes through town meeting a pianist for a particular tour. And he hears about Mary Lou's abilities to play back by ear and, and the fact that she also is able to have a swing feel. So he goes to her house and he sees her playing outside, playing hopscotch, as he says. And he thinks he's been that he's the brunt of a joke. So at first, he doesn't believe that this young girl at this point, she's about 14 years old, can play until he follows her in her house and he starts singing melodies to her of some of the pieces that his band is playing and she plays them back. So then she goes on the road with that group with hits and bits. So she never had formal teachers. Her mother felt that if she had a formal music piano teacher, that she would lose her ability to improvise. So that's partially why she learned more from musicians who just came to her home and informally mentored her. And this is something that I think listeners need to understand. She was doing all this without, as you said, having been trained in music. And in fact, she didn't learn to read or notate music until she was in her 20s. Do do I remember that correctly? Yes. So Mary Lou, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier about what does an arranger do? When Mary Lou was on the road for 12 years with Andy Kirk and his 12 Clouds of Joy, that was her first opportunity to be, well, first of all, with a group for that long, but second, to be with a a group that had different horns. So if we're talking about saxophones, trumpets, et cetera, where she heard compositional ideas in her head, but that didn't mean that she knew exactly how to obviously notate them because if you don't learn how to notate music how to read music it's a language so she just hadn't had anyone show her that language yet so Andy Kirk who's the band leader shows her helps her learn how to notate the musical ideas she's hearing in her head for the band and then it's she's able to workshop those ideas because she's with this band for a a great amount of time they're rehearsing every week playing every week or multiple times per week obviously and so she's able to try out ideas and then refine them and that's something that was really important for her to have that period that length of time I mean especially now if you think of well COVID certainly but jazz musicians we or touring musicians it's really rare to get to play with the same group of people for months at a time, let, them, let alone years. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Deanna Witkowski. She's an award-winning jazz pianist and composer. Today we're talking about her recent book, Mary Lou Williams, Music for the Soul. And it should be noted that in October, Witkowski is coming out with an album called Force of Nature, which features compositions entirely penned by Mary Lou Williams. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. 
Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Deanna Witkowski. She's an award-winning jazz pianist and composer. She's had multiple recordings, and today we're talking about her recent book, Mary Lou Williams' Music for the Soul. Well, before the break, we were talking about the fact that Mary Lou Williams had a very early talent for mimicking and playing back music that she heard, and that her mother resisted having her learn musical notation. And it wasn't until she was a young adult that she began to learn how to write down music and be able to both make compositions for herself that were able to be shared with others, but also to be able to arrange for the various groups that she was playing with. One of the things that I really learned and became clear to me for the first time in reading your book about Mary Lou Williams was these terms that I've heard for years, but never quite understood how they fit into the sort of long stretch of jazz. So you mentioned stride piano, and there's also bebop and hard bop and cool jazz. I'm beginning to understand all these different ways of approaching jazz. But one thing that rang out for me in your book was that Mary Lou Williams was oftentimes described accused and eventually very proud of the fact that she didn't fit into any one of those styles, even though she contributed, arguably, to the development of many of them, particularly bebop. And so I want to begin to ask about how Mary Lou Williams is now regarded in terms of her role in helping to shape jazz and these different styles such as bebop and others. Well, first of all, David, I'm really glad that my book described these styles in a way <laughs> that, that made them welcoming and accessible. And that's really one thing with writing this book, you know, writing about music. It's it certainly was a challenge to, to put into words how to describe different sounds. I mean, I think that's something that's challenging for any writer writing about music. But Mary Lou is really someone who was told at various points, as you said, that no one could pin a style on her. And that was something that wasn't always meant in a complimentary way, but that she took as a compliment because she always said that she was an experimenter. And especially in the 1940s, she had other musicians, bebop musicians, whose names perhaps your listeners might know, like Charlie Parker or Dizzy Gillespie, Bud Powell, Thelonious Monk, who all came to her apartment where she had nightly salons after everyone finished their gig. So this would be like one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. And people like Flonius Monk, the pianist, who is very well known, at least to jazz aficionados and jazz musicians, would play their compositions for Mary Lou and want to get her feedback before they would actually try them out. 
in public. So that is a piece of Mary Lou's story or her lore that gets really perpetuated today that a lot of jazz musicians know about that she was this great mentor figure to these other musicians. And they certainly, especially Dizzy Gillespie talked about how Mary Lou was right there when bebop started, that she was a huge influence on bebop musicians. However, for myself, and part of the reason I wrote the book is because it's easy to know this is just a fact that Mary Lou was a mentor for other more famous, let's be frank, male musicians. And what happens when that's the one fact that people know about Mary Lou Williams is she becomes this exceptional woman who we don't really have to know about her music, her compositions, or because we just put her on this pedestal and refer to her in relation to other musicians whose names we do know. So for instance, if I go to a jam session, which is where, say, I go to a jazz club, I get called up on stage with other musicians who I may or may not have ever played with before, and we try to figure out a tune that we're all going to play together, most likely, 90% chance or better, everyone else is going to know at least one Miles Davis or Mung or Gillespie or Parker tune, but no one's going to know a Mary Williams tune. And that's part of why I wrote this book is to get people back to listening to Mary Lou's music and to knowing what it sounds like. Well, and and as we continue the conversation, we're going to be diving deeper and deeper into not only Mary Lou's life, but Mary Lou's music and the way that it it shapes not only the jazz world, but also the world of liturgics and religious faith. But on the way to that, I, I want to linger for a few more moments with the kind of culture of jazz. Because again, if you're a person sitting in the audience, you may think that these performers have a glamorous and very successful and very comfortable life. Well, one of the I'm things, sorry, that just cracks me up. <laughs> well, you paint for us the picture of what life on the road in the 1930s and 40s and 50s was like. And you mention Mary Lou Williams's apartment and how she became not only a refuge and a haven for jazz musicians that were working out their, their compositions, but also eventually she becomes for want of a better word, a halfway house for musicians that are struggling with drug addiction and other kinds of financial hardships. You talk about the fact that she handed over sometimes her whole paycheck or her whole take from a gig to a struggling musician. But that also made me think about another person, a patron of jazz that got mentioned in passing in your book, Duchess Pananica de Kunigswater. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. The, you know, Charlie Parker died in, in, right. in Pananica's apartment. Thelonious right. Monk composed basically... <laughs> you know, tributes to Pananica. So I tell us a little bit about what it was like behind the scenes and the importance of kind of apartment refuges for jazz musicians because of the hardness of that life. Well, I think one thing for Mary Lou is so the period when she starts living in New York is she moves there in 1943, which is soon after she leaves Andy Kirk's band that she's with for about 12 years. And while she was with Andy Kirk, she really had a very strong sense of community with her fellow musicians in that band. And I really believe that part of her ongoing work and having not just these musical salons, but even going out and trying to, I mean, save musicians who were dealing with various forms of addiction was to create another form of community in her home 
But she is seeing, she describes when she's on the road with Andy Kirk, for instance, they often have occasions where they'll do a gig in another Midwestern state and it gets to be the end of the night. And the owner of the ballroom where they're playing doesn't pay Andy Kirk. So he comes back to the band and, you know, has just has to tell everyone there's no Lenny. So she talks about this. She makes light of it in some ways because she says, oh, you know, we all just laughed and smiled. And then we went and tried to find some food somewhere. I mean, like at someone's home where they would have to find a place to stay or they got stranded on the road several times where they have no money to go back to Kansas City. So what do you do? I mean, these are very practical, everyday things. And Mary Lou also, when she moves to New York in 1943, that's right around the time where there's riots in her Harlem neighborhood. And so she's seeing, she had been to New York many times before that touring, but now this is the first point where she's living there. And she's really seeing what's happening to her neighborhood just right outside her door. There's also a young boy in her apartment who is killed uh, around this time in the mid-1940s. And she really feels like she has to do something to help. And she is not always certain that it's just her music that's going to help people. So this is when she does open her home. To people who are struggling with addiction, she gives away her food. I mean, at a certain point, Dizzy Gillespie and his wife, Lorraine, start sending food to her apartment because she tells them that she's just drinking water and eating apples, which is certainly not enough. So she really is trying to save the world around her. And in particular, two of her friends, Bud Powell, who was a great bebop pianist, and Charlie Parker, Mary Lou is called in often, especially with Powell, who dealt with some mental illness. She would get a call from the owner at Birdland, a club in New York, to come and help calm Powell down when he had a performance and and was having difficulty being able to function. She would bring him into her apartment, try to help him with, he also had drug issues. So she was trying to help in any way she could to help people's lives be better. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Deanna Witkowski. She's an award-winning jazz pianist and composer. We're talking about her recent book, Mary Lou Williams, Music for the Soul. And I want to note that in October, Witkowski is coming out with an album featuring all compositions by Mary Lou Williams called Force of Nature. Well, we've talked about the fact that life on the road was hard for all jazz musicians. But then when we look at the life of Mary Lou Williams, she was African-American and there was a very strong color line through most of her career where you were either playing on the all African-American circuit or what's called the mixed race circuit if you were lucky. But she was also a woman, which means that oftentimes you know, interviews or reviews of her work would start off with lines like, if you close your eyes, you'd never know that Mary Lou Williams was a woman and, and not a man. Like these kinds of very gendered, very sexist kinds of things. And it takes a toll on her. And, you know, she had a full career. Her entire life was playing music. And that gets encompassed really well in your book about her. And so we're going to be moving quickly here. But towards her 
her 40s and 50s, she really begins to withdraw, both seeing the death of friends from the jazz scene, but also just life on the road and the various kinds of obstacles that she met. She really pulls back. I'd love to hear a little bit about what that pulling back was like for her. Sure. Well, in late 1952, Mary Lou goes to Europe for the first time for a tour that she thinks is going to last for two weeks. She ends up staying in Europe, primarily in England and France, for two years. And it's while she's there, and she actually has a lot of opportunities in Europe that she doesn't find in America. So, for instance, one of the things you talk about with her full career is, yes, she had a full career, but she also worked very hard to make that career happen. And that kind of day in and day out, 24-7 work of, for instance, finding a record label when you're not getting approached by Columbia Records to record or fighting a lawsuit when someone else claims that they're the one who wrote your particular original composition. And Mary Lou had a lawsuit that she lost on that point because she didn't file a composition in time with the copyright office. I mean, that is work that really people who come to see an artist don't necessarily see that work. For an independent artist and an independent woman in the 40s and an African-American woman instrumentalist, these obstacles are just day in and day out and they become part of the fabric of her life. So when she goes to Europe, she actually has a little bit of a reprieve from that because she finds that there is a public there who knows her work and she gets some recording offers there. And does a couple of records for the Vogue label, in, both in England and France. But while she's in France, she's working at a nightclub. One of her best friends there, a pianist who's also there from the States, because there were a lot of American expats in France in the 1950s, especially jazz musicians and artists. One of her best friends dies. And she's, again, been having this pull of just so much work that just leads to burnout and wondering how she can help her fellow jazz musicians, that she decides to just leave a club engagement. So as she describes it, she walks off the stage at a club that she's been playing at and she doesn't come back. There's a friend of hers, a patron, who introduces her to a garden where there's a statue of the Virgin Mary and she starts just going there to be quiet and meditate. And she starts to feel a calm there. She starts reading the Psalms because she meets someone at a party who tells her that he comes up to her because he senses that something is amiss. And he suggests that she read the 91st Psalm and she goes and reads all 150 Psalms and, and feels a calm as she reads. So this is the beginning of spiritual, a conscious spiritual search for Mary Lou. Well, one of the things, though, that you make plain is that even from her very first moments on the planet, she has a kind of aura around her. So you mention a midwife saying, well, she was born with a portion of the placenta covering mm-hmm. her eyes. She's born with a veil. And in okay. the African-American tradition, that's someone who was born with visions. And you mentioned that, in fact, Mary Lou reports having premonitions, for example, about the death of Charlie Parker. Right. And so she's, it's even though in this garden, she begins to focus the attunement of this kind of spiritual attention. It's something that she's had her entire life. But talk to us about how this moment in the garden begins to focus her into a new direction of spirituality. Well, Mary Lou says that around the same time where 
she's in this garden and she also has a vision of Mary. She confides that to some of her relatives. She's in her hotel room and she says she just starts praying and that it's the first time that she really consciously prays. So when she comes back to the States in late 1954, She's first of all, she's coming back after she's been gone for two years. So the jazz scene has changed. She doesn't have her nightly salons anymore. She doesn't have that same sense of community. And she's just started feeling this pulling towards something that's going to give her an inner peace. And she starts searching for a church that can give that to her. And she finds a Catholic church that's just blocks from her apartment in Harlem, where she says later on in interviews that the reason she started going there was because it was the only church that had its doors open during the day and it was quiet. And she felt that she could be in there, in that space, in that sanctuary without having, as she put it, vibes hitting her in the head. So I think for her, Mary Lou was someone who was very intuitive and she really felt what other people were feeling. And I think that's also why she was so attuned to helping other people because she felt their distress. And it's when she's in this Catholic church at Our Lady of Lourdes in Harlem, where she is actually taking time for herself and she's She's trying to discern what she's supposed to be doing with her life, with her music, even though as soon as she leaves that church, she goes home and she'll have a musician or or a neighbor staying in her apartment and she'll be trying to get food for them or writing music for them so that they'll listen to the music and not take drugs. I mean, this is literally her days become spent between church and home for a period of, of about three years before she converts to Catholicism. And you mentioned that during that period, she was living the life of almost a monastic or a vowed woman religious. So she wasn't just going to church in the morning. She was going to mass after mass. Right. And she also started writing down a prayer list of, of names of people to pray for. And that list tops at one point 900 names. So Part of the reason she has to be in church so long is because at this point, she really believes that she needs to name each person on that list and envision each person on that list. And that takes a very long time to get through 900 names. So when she's introduced through Dizzy Gillespie and through another priest who Dizzy Gillespie meets in South America in Paraguay named Father John Crowley, through both of them and through Barry Ulanov, who is the editor of a jazz magazine named Metronome, they all introduce her to a Jesuit priest named Father Anthony Woods. And Father Woods is really the first person who's able to spend time with Mary and show her different kinds of, of prayer so that she doesn't feel that she has to name each person on that list individually and that her music can be a prayer. So this is when she starts coming back to music and eventually with Dizzy's wife, Lorraine Gillespie, who was actually investigating Catholicism at the time, both Mary and Lorraine are received into the church in 1957. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Deanna Witkowski. She's an award-winning jazz pianist and composer. She has recordings that span seven different albums. We're talking today about her recent book, Mary Lou Williams' Music for the Soul. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture, and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today we're speaking with Deanna Witkowski. She is an award-winning jazz pianist and composer. Her seven recordings include Force of Nature, which is coming out in October, featuring compositions all penned by Mary Lou Williams. And we're talking today about her recent book, Mary Lou Williams' Music for the Soul. So we've been talking about how Mary Lou Williams reached a point of desolation, spiritual contemplation. She really withdrew from performance, and she went into a very contemplative period of her life where she was praying every day for at times up to upwards of 900 people. And she was led by a series of relationships to consider joining the Catholic Church, and she eventually does join the Catholic Church. And then as she is joining the Catholic Church, she's been having a vocational crisis trying to figure out, does she need to keep playing music or should she put her efforts somewhere else? And there are a couple of priests and others who really direct her to understand that her music might in fact be a calling of God. Now, those are my my words, not yours, so maybe you'd say it in a different way. But talk to us a little bit about how she returns to music and what it's like and how it's different when she makes this return. Well, you're certainly right, David, that there are priests who are really repeatedly telling Mary Lou that her music can be counted as a form of prayer. And I think it's interesting, you know, you used the words desolation, that she had this period of desolation and contemplation. And I think especially of desolation as being an Ignatian term, a term from the Jesuits. And it's very interesting to me that a lot of Mary Lou's journey towards Catholicism and even after she converts in her spiritual formation is with various Jesuits, mainly in New York City. And and I also came to Catholicism through Jesuits in New York City and some of the same parishes as Mary Lou. So she really, through these different priests, I really believe she finds a way for her music to be a form of contemplative prayer. She talks about in certain interviews how when she first comes back to playing her first real public performance after this three-year period where she did do some recording but wasn't really performing publicly, was in 1957 at the Newport Jazz Festival with the Dizzy Gillespie Orchestra. And that recording, you can even go on YouTube and, and find it. And what I really find interesting, just the more I've even thought and imagined being there at that point for Mary Lou, is that so she was arranging several pieces from her 1945 masterwork, The Zodiac Suite, for Disney's band. But she was working with another woman, African-American arranger, and trombonist Melba Liston on those arrangements. She was playing as a soloist. She was being recognized as a composer and a pianist and someone who the jazz world had really 
lost for a while and missed her presence. And she, she talks about how that experience of playing Mary Lou was someone who was very much, I think like many artists, at least I can say, she would have this joy in the moment of playing. And then afterwards it's like, okay, what's next? What am I supposed to do next? And she talks later on about how at Newport, she didn't feel like she was up to par in her playing. But when I actually imagine her working with Melba Liston and working with Dizzy Gillespie and being around all these people in this audience who welcomes her back. I have to believe that that made Mary Lou feel joy. And because she wasn't always sure if interacting with audiences, at least in nightclub situations where people aren't always as focused and attentive, if her music was making a difference for people. And so at least in Newport, I think she senses that it is, at least at that moment. Now she still is really hesitant to perform publicly after this. And Mary Lou was someone who, for all of the work and the performing she did, she was a shy person at heart. And it took a lot of energy for her to keep playing in public. So she had several more points in the years after Newport, where she stops playing for a while like a jack-in-the-box, as one reviewer describes it, until she goes on her first spiritual retreat and there's uh, a vowed woman, religious, a nun, a cynical sister named Martha Mulligan, who actually encourages her, along with all these priests who have been doing this, but significant that it's a woman now, a nun who encourages her to start playing the piano again. So I think Mary Lou actually really still struggles in these years for about six or seven years after her conversion to, to play. And it's through relationships with people like Sister Mulligan, who she ends up having a letter correspondence with for over 17 years, that she's really encouraged, repeatedly encouraged, that her music is uplifting to other people and that she needs to keep playing. You mentioned a moment ago the Zodiac Suite, and for listeners who are unfamiliar with this composition, it is exactly what it sounds like. The structure of it is two or three minute pieces that go through the 12 signs of the Zodiac, but in each case, Mary Lou Williams is envisioning two or three of her contemporaries, musicians and others from her life who fit into that Zodiac sign, and she's making that be part of the the palette of how these different compositions sort of play with each other. Now, that is the beginning of trying to take a, a spiritual idea, because many people, you know, think of the Zodiac as a way of getting insight into how we should live our lives. That's the background from which she then turns after this period of meeting the Seneca sister and these various priests. She begins to compose music for liturgies. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that transition and how that begins. Well, Mary Lou talks about how one of her really close friends was a Franciscan friar named Mario Hancock. And Brother Mario is an African-American Franciscan and probably one of the first African-American religious, vowed religious who Mary Lou had met. So she encounters Mario at Graymoor, which is a retreat center uh, in upstate New York. And they develop a very close friendship. And this is a period, so early 1960s, where Mary Lou still isn't playing very much. Brother Mario is the one who really pushes 
Mary Lou, now we've been talking about her retreat from performing, but she also had this retreat from composing. So in 1962, St. Martin de Porres, who is the first biracial saint that was canonized in the Catholic Church, is canonized, named a saint. And he was a really important figure for African-American Catholics and still, frankly, is. And Brother Mario visits Mary in her Harlem apartment, and he brings a little statuette of St. Martin de Porres and sticks it on her upright Baldwin piano and says, Martin is going to help you start composing again. And Mary Lou really takes this to heart, and she decides she wants to write a choral piece for St. Martin de Porres. Now, she doesn't want to write the lyrics, so she actually writes the music first, or at least writes a melody. And she brings it to Father Woods, her spiritual advisor, and asks him to write a lyric. So she premieres that piece at a civil rights mass at St. Francis Xavier Church, where Father Woods is at. He's parish priest in 1962 for St. Martin de Porres. And then she scores that for a large-scale choir. And that piece actually appears on a recording that she did on her own record label. She forms her own record label around this time, Mary Records. And in 1963 and 64, she records for this album called Mary the Williams Presents Black Christ of the Andes. And Black Christ of the Andes was her alternate name for St. Martin de Porres. And that becomes a really important piece of her work because this is a time where in a few years after this recording, she starts writing more choral pieces, more mass settings. And often for her, when she starts doing the mass settings in 1967, it's really out of practicality. She's working at an all-girls Catholic school in Pittsburgh for a particular period of time and feels that she's supposed to be teaching this curriculum where she's teaching music theory. And she says, the girls just aren't responding. So she starts showing them how to scan and how to do music in a way that's, again, more about oral tradition. And so while she's there, she decides this is a perfect opportunity. All these priests have been bugging her to write a jazz mass. So she thinks, I'm going to write a mass for the kids to sing. And that's when she writes uh, her Pittsburgh mass in 1967. And then she writes two subsequent masses in the three years after that. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Deanna Witkowski. She's an award-winning jazz pianist and composer. Today we're talking about her recent book, Mary Lou Williams' Music for the Soul. Well, something struck me as I was reading your book. She's making this turn to beginning to write liturgical music at around the same time that the Catholic Church is looking at its history and re-examining it itself, because she is involved in writing these liturgical masses more and more as Vatican II, the Second Vatican Council, is happening. One of the things that really struck me as a kind of spiritual parallel here, is that Vatican II was all about resourcement, going back to the sources and finding new ways to speak the old truths. It struck me how similar that is to the way that jazz operates. It may go back to a standard and reinterpret it in a new way so that ears can hear it in a fresh and new manner. Now, when I'm making that parallel, am I overreaching or am I onto something here? <laughs> No, I think you're onto something because, you know, a lot of this, I think when I think of Vatican II and masses finally being able to be said in the vernacular, I'm thinking about 
who are the people who come and sit in the pews? I mean, if musicians just, and, and I think some jazz musicians are like this, if they just perform for themselves and expect everybody to just show up and listen to them and love the music, they're going to have, quite frankly, probably a pretty small audience or devoted group of listeners or patrons. When I think about Mary Lou's music, I think about how she wanted the people in the pews to be actively participating in the liturgical music she was creating. Or when she played at a jazz club, she wanted to bring people along with her. And that really involved, uh, especially say her first mass in 1967. I mean, she was really trying to set for the first time she would have been hearing when she first converts mass in Latin. So for her, this is a change. I mean, she didn't grow up Catholic, but now she's able to make the the words of the Kyrie and Gloria and the Agnus Dei wash over people in a different way. So she's going back to that music, combining it with her jazz and something new is born out of that. And I think she does that in all of her liturgical music. You mentioned a moment ago her incorporation of scat singing as a way of trying to teach music theory and the notion of oral tradition. I'm aware, and I'm sure you're aware as well, that the Catholic Church has a historical sort of difficulty, particularly in America, incorporating African-American experience into itself. It I, 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 So, for example, in New York, Father Brian Massingale has written a lot from Fordham University about the real difficulty that the Catholic Church has with a kind of institutional racism. And as you've looked at this life of Mary Lou Williams, she's composing things for the church using jazz, which is arguably an intrinsically African-American medium of music. What is the church's reaction to these gifts that she's giving of liturgy and reimagining of these liturgical and mass settings? Well, Mary Lou, it's really often been reported that Mary Lou pretty much just faced uphill battles in getting her liturgical music performed in churches. And she certainly did not get the same opportunities, for instance, in 1968, early that year, or no, 67, she's doing a concert at Carnegie Hall that was actually commissioned by the New York Jesuits. They commissioned six composers, including Mary Lou, to write new liturgical music. They partner with a record label, Avant-Garde Records. They put these releases out. And Mary Lou and another person on the program, David Amram, who had written Jewish liturgical music, the two of them are the ones who do not necessarily see their music get incorporated in houses of worship. And I think that the part of this, it's not only the fact that she's coming out of an African-American tradition. It's thinking about how in Western culture, we really value the eye more than the ear. And even if so, if someone is looking before they hear someone play, for instance, we talked earlier about, you mentioned that earlier review from Time Magazine that said, oh, if you close your eyes, you wouldn't think Mary the Williams is a woman. Well, that's because there's this bias that we think that jazz musicians are male and that they sound a certain way and that certain sounds are gendered or sound more feminine, more masculine. Or, and looking, that's something where we decide the value of something by what we see 
rather than by what we hear. And there's also a kind of, I mean, music is somewhat ephemeral. You know, it goes away right away. So it's harder to capture if we can write it down, if we can make it visible in some way. It's something we can know more in in some people's understanding. So in churches, and I even think of this particularly today, in churches where there's cultures of people being used to either looking in a hymnal and reading every note or looking on a screen, even if it's just the words or not having music where it's taught orally, there's a, there's a fear around that. And there's an uncomfortability or there's a thing I'm going to get it wrong because at least if the music is written on a piece of paper, I know how to deal with it. Now, in Mary Lou's case, she was notating this music, but she was often forming choirs where she was working with kids, with youth choirs and teaching them the music orally. And she was able to do this herself in a lot of different churches, but she wanted I think even more than doing this herself, she wanted other church musicians to do her music. So I frankly don't know of a lot of Catholic churches in the United States that are doing Mary Lou's mass, say her third mass, without having obviously Mary Lou be present because she's no longer with us. That music, however, is available. And it's something that I know that Mary Lou would want to have be a part of a worshiping life of a community. You've written this book about Mary Lou Williams. We've mentioned at several points as I've reintroduced you that you're coming out in October with an album called Force of Nature, which features compositions all written by Mary Lou Williams. But I'm curious, how have you personally felt that you've been touched by her life and her music? Well, I've been very personally touched by Mary Lou Williams' life. I mean, I moved to Pittsburgh because of following Mary Lou's story. I found a very welcoming jazz community in Pittsburgh because of of coming here to do research a couple of years ago and falling in love with the jazz community here. And I realized that the welcoming spirit that I heard in musicians playing here and the soulfulness of that music and the soulfulness of the audiences here and the encouragement is something that I hear in all of Mary Lou's playing. So I started coming here more and more to perform. I just kept getting more opportunities here and I eventually moved here. So in a very practical way, (laughs) Mary Lou has uprooted my life (laughs) somewhere You know, I'm somewhere where I'm growing and having different opportunities like doing this recording. But also, when I first discovered Mary Lou Williams, it was back in 2000, the late Dr. Billy Taylor, jazz pianist, called me and asked me to play at the Kennedy Center Mary Lou Williams Festival. And I was like many musicians then. I didn't know Williams's music at all. So I started checking it out. And the very first biography of her called Morning Glory had just come out. And I got that book. I got to the point where it talked about Mary Lou's sacred music, and I just couldn't believe it because I had just written my first jazz mass for an Episcopal church I was working at in New York. And I felt, here's somebody who's come before me, a woman in a very still today, very male-dominated field, who has made this unique path for herself, swings her butt off, can play all these different styles of jazz, and she wrote liturgical music and brought it to all these communities. That is what I'm doing too. And so Mary Lou to me is more than a mentor. I mean, I 
she's someone who, you know, I have conversations with and I ask her sometimes, what am I supposed to do, Mary Lou? You know, you brought me here. Please show me. I mean, to me, it's part of like the communion of, of saints, that concept in Catholicism. And Mary Lou is like my lifelong mentor or companion. So I'm really grateful that I had this opportunity to delve even more deeply into her life and her music, even after having played her music for so long. Well, Deanna Witkowski, I I have to say, I've heard the name Mary Lou Williams for a long time, but it was really your book, uh, Music for the Soul, that really just brought her world to me. It is a fantastic book. I'm so glad that I read it because I learned so much from it. But also there were a couple points where I was literally moved to tears by some of how you conveyed the moments with her. So I'm just, I'm incredibly grateful that you took the time to write this book, but I'm especially grateful that you took the time to talk with us about it today. Well, David, thank you. It's been really great speaking with you. And I hope that as a result of this book, that a lot of your listeners will not just read the book, but go and seek out Mary Lou's music. Deanna Witkowski is an award-winning jazz pianist and composer. Her seven recordings include Makes the Heart to Sing, Jazz Hymns. She's a frequent guest music leader, and Witkowski has shared her original liturgical jazz in over 100 churches throughout the United States. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, Mary Lou Williams' Music for the Soul. And in October, Witkowski is coming out with an album called Force of Nature, featuring all Williams' compositions. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.